All right. Hey, let's take a look at your calendar first, if we can just do that, just to maybe explain and point out the obvious that is my spiritual gift. I can do that. Um, Let's talk about the most obvious. Today is October 16th, and we are going to do our third session on the heart. There will only be one more that we'll do, um, and that won't come up until next semester in February. Uh, What we've done so far is we've done two surveys studies of the heart, right? We um, just kind of walked through Scripture, looking at what the Word of God says about the heart. And now what we're going to do today is is, um, go after um, one of my favorite passages and I I think uh, a very popular verse. And those are always the, the, the funnest. Is that a word? Most fun? What's the rule on that grammatically? You, you don't care, do you? It's the funnest when you take a when you take a verse that you're very familiar with and and uh, then you actually study what's around it. Oh my goodness! Wait till you see today. It's going to be so great. Um, we're going to do that today. We're going to drill down deep into a passage and look and see what God is saying about the heart in its context and in a greater context there. And then we're going to we're turning the corner after today. And even your homework that you got for next time for November, um, it's going to help you start turning the corner to start thinking about. Okay, I'm shepherding my heart. I see the need for the importance of paying attention to the heart. The heart is the battleground for for who I am and and before God and what I need to be and, and where God wants me to go uh, as a godly man. And the first place of impact relationally is my home. That's where we're turning. We're starting to make that, that direction uh, shift a little bit. We're not leaving behind the heart. We, we want, you'll never graduate from Discipline 1, but we're going to start focusing on Discipline 2 here on the home starting in November. And uh, so that you can just kind of take a peek at that. Um, down at the bottom, the optional. Uh, Craig, do you have any guess? Do you have any sense of what our response has been? Are we are we getting close at all, or I have no idea. I have no idea. If if you like to golf and want to golf for something uh, worthy, uh, it would be great tomorrow at church if you could get over to the uh, table to sign up for the. Tyler, do you have any ideas? I think we just have four foursomes. Say that again. I think we have two foursomes. That's it. That is not enough. We're, we need. If you guys need to do some golf and. Uh, to help us raise some money for missions, you're, you're, we'd love for you to do that. Tomorrow's the day. Go over in the sanctuary or the gym and uh, go over to the small table. Get yourself signed up. Sign up for some um, and some great prizes. Uh, just some great time together. Lunch will be provided for you on that day on October 30th. And um, we're probably at a do or die point with that. I'm going to guess number wise. So. What time is it? Do you know what time? You got details? Yeah, the shotgun starts at 8 o'clock. It's at Continental Golf Course, which is off of Hayden and Thomas Road. Um, we'll, you, know, you can get there about 7.30, and we'll start at 8. Uh, we should wrap up things, I'd say, around 12, 12.30, and then have lunch. Um, and then be out of there, I hope, around 1, 1.30. So. Yeah. And they've got a um, Toyota Prius on hole 3. Most for the definitely. Yeah. No, I'm just it, It's a very easy course, so if you're kind of like a, really a golfer. It's, it's a very easy course. The par threes are probably 100 yards. Um, there's a par four that's like 400 yards. It's not a very long course.
So if you've never played, you're gonna play in a scramble. So that means you play with three other people with you. You, you know, the best shot you play from. So if your buddy gets the best shot, everybody plays from that ball all the way until the ball is pulled. So it's a very easy format for you know a bunch of beginners to be able to play. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for uh, when you play it scramble style for others to bear your weakness, to help you bear your the burden that you are <laughs> in golf. So it's a, it's a lesson in humility, and that's good. We could always use that. Scott, how does that coincide with, are we meeting in here two weeks? Or? No. Uh, if you'll notice, up on the top part, it says November 6th. Today's October 16th. Our next build date is November 6th, um, and the golf tournament is purposefully on an off Saturday. Um, so you'll just uh, plan on doing that if you can, okay? So tomorrow, when you get to church, either before or after, head over to that table, get some of the details, uh, try to help us make that happen if at all possible. Um, and then I just want to point out to you the Shepherds Conference in March. I know that's a ways off, but uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a cheap thing. It's like 300 bucks for the conference. You get all kinds of amazing goodies in terms of books um, that come back to you and plus you'll, I think you'll get like a, like a $50 gift card to the book uh, to the store that you can use there plus you have hotel so I encourage you guys to get an envelope now right on the outside of it Shepherd's Conference and start dropping 20s in it whenever you can and start saving your money for it because it is um we take a bunch of guys. We want all of encourage all of you to go. Um, we carpool over together, and this just the time of fellowship together and, and hanging out over in, um, in Grace Community in L.A. and um, you know just soaking in the, the rich uh, teaching and preaching there. Uh, it, it's just a great time to be together. So uh, it's one of my favorite times of the whole year uh, with you guys. So. Mark that down and, and don't let that sneak up on you. Uh, but do your best to try to save up for that now and, and uh, be ready to go. Okay? Any questions about the calendar, what you see there? Does it make sense? Absolutely. So what's the total dollar? Um, yeah, then you have to add hotel on top of that, and I don't remember what it is. It all depends on um, how many to a room you sleep. Uh, what your what your toleration level is there, and um, it, it can be anywhere from another hundred bucks a night to less. Um, we try to stay pretty close by. Um, we've stayed down in actually uh, North Hollywood, um, just it's like five minutes away, and it's a nice little um, the Beverly Garland Hotel there. It's been good. So. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle that. And if you've got your own connections out there, people you know and people you can stay with, well, that's even better. You know, uh, just make plans for that. It's a, it's a great time. Um, a word on your homework. If you'll notice um, what, what's due for today, the green sheet, maybe some of you felt caught a little bit on this. Um, the, the very first little section of questions there says, what time of day are you doing your reading? Why did do you read at that time? In what ways is that time helpful? In what ways is that time a challenge? Do you need to make any changes? Um, and, and the second one, write a little bit about how this is going for you, about how you just it's going. If, if you did your homework last night and you weren't thinking about this, um, 
you know, for the last two weeks, it's hard to write it how it's going for you. Because you, you can't, unless you were doing it, you know, and you were mindful of it. But if, the point is, is don't wait to fill out your homework on Saturday or Friday nights. Um, take a look at it before you go. Start looking through the questions. Start thinking about them so you have something more intelligent to write and helpful to write the next time you come. Does that make sense, guys? Um, so even if you look at your blue sheet today, and I'm sorry, some of them didn't get three-hole punched. And Omri, I saw that you grabbed one from the library. Do, um, would you be willing to go grab that and set it out for us? And just, just set it out like maybe on the back thing, and then we'll make sure that we get it. You guys can go up and three-hole punch your own. Um, but if you look at your blue sheet today, um, th- these questions, it'll be especially helpful if you can uh, start on this now. How have you done the last month in bringing your heart before God through his word? Please be as detailed as you can. I got a couple of changes you need to make um, on the second question. I obviously use this from year to year, and, I, and I, I didn't, I forgot to change the dates. I changed the dates at the top where it says due Saturday, November 6, 2010, but I didn't change the dates in question two and question three. You should scratch out April of 2010, and you should put May of 2011. So where would you like to be by the end of May 2011? Um, with this discipline and then question three and in anticipation of our next meeting not on October 31st but on November 6th so cross out October 31 and write November 6th sorry about those typos on that so in anticipation of our next meeting um, on the home this is where uh, you're going to start your homework's going to start involving those that you live with you're going to be spending some time with your wife. If you have children old enough to understand these questions, I encourage you to ask your children. Um, some of these questions are going to be coming in the weeks to come. Um, it will be one of the. It'll be a, a, a. It'll be a humbling time, guys. To ask your wife and to ask maybe a roommate, ask your children. Um, what kids? What what kind of? What's it like to live here under me? Honey, when you when you sin, do you want to run from this house or do you want to run to this house? Guys, that's that's those are big questions, and it all guys it, it, it lies in your lap and it lies in my lap as men. That what we do in our homes, the tone that is sent there, you cannot look around and point the finger at somebody else, except at you. You're the man. Take responsibility for it and begin to make changes. As some of I've heard some of you say, what God's been doing in your own life, put the stake in the ground and, and say, from this point forward, never going back that way, only going this way, and um, start to make those changes um, that need to be taking place. And, and you know what? God will help you to make those changes as you talk with your wives, your roommates, your kids, and they tell you honestly um, how, how, what it's like to live in, in your home. Uh, so, so don't be afraid to do that. Uh, turn your notebook over to the back. Let's walk through the disciplines that are there. We want these things to come out naturally in your sleep. These are just the things that you should uh, know and love and practice. 
Discipline number one is what Build uh, seeks to really focus on the most. If you play leapfrog over this, two through six make no sense and mean nothing. Um, and whatever else you would be as a man, no matter how smart you could be theologically, uh, no matter how impressive your biblical knowledge might be, if you are not shepherding your heart in order to know God um, from the heart, you're a shell of a man. Your ministry is a shell. There's nothing to you. You are a vapor. You are a bubble that's about to pop and be out of everybody's mind and um, memory. Uh, you must be a man who shepherds your own heart. You must be a man that um, is concerned to draw near to God in his word so that your heart might draw near to him. You want the God of the word. You want the God of the word. Uh, so guys, you have to be disciplined to do this. You really have to be disciplined to do this. It's not a, this is not something that once you become a Christian, necessarily, oh, this just always happens on its own. You never have to think about it. No, you have to think about it. You have to discipline yourself for it because of the residue of sin within you. Because of indwelling sin, it will constantly fight against this new man desire to come near to God. It will. It will talk you out of doing it all the time. And so you have to discipline yourself to drag your sorry carcass before God's word all of the time. You'll have to. You need to become disciplined with that. Once you do that, discipline too, you're ready to really focus on the home and to step into um, your relationships there. Um, we've got a chair up here if you want. You can grab them back there. Oh, there's one right next to here too, maybe. By, by Dave Moore, we got a couple there. Um, the first place, just like we said, the first place of impact that we should make with these hearts that have drawn near to God in his word, it should be our homes. Um, the, the first place where there should be an aroma of love for God and love for his word uh, should be in your home, where you live. Uh, people who come into your home, who step into your home, if they're going to spend any time in your home, there should be something that happens, something that they get about you and about the way you are, that they say, you know, there, there's, a, there's a man who loves God here. There's a man who loves God's word here. Um, I see it in the way that he talks. I hear it in the way he talks. I see it in the way he treats the people he lives with. I see it in the way that he orders his life in this home. This, 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 this home is a museum with artifacts and evidence everywhere that this is a man whose heart is after God. Um, you cannot miss that. And you have to discipline yourself as much for that as you do anything else. You really do. It's not going to just reflexively happen. You can't fool yourself into thinking that, well, just because I live there, people, people are really benefited by me. You can't just think that that's the way that it actually, uh, you know, automatically is. You have to discipline yourself to be a man who's concerned about other people, to bring God's word to bear on their lives. Um, and that's discipline too. Once you have done that and you are focusing on these things or as you are focusing on these first two disciplines, then discipline three. Step into anybody's life and everybody's life that you can with the gospel. Begin to think about ministering to people in the church, outside the church, through your work, at school, wherever God has you. You start stepping into people's lives. And as they get involved in your life, as they step into your life and they get to know you better... And maybe they become they come into contact with your home. They're going to go, huh? What I see in the classroom with this guy when I'm sitting with him at school, that's what he is here at home. 
What I see of him at work and the way that he talks at work, he, he doesn't talk to his kids a different way. The way he treats me is the way that he treats his wife. <clears throat> you know, if, if you skip over these things just to have evangelistic ministry with people outside the church, to, to have ministry within the church, if you skip over discipline one and discipline two to work on those things, it's just a matter of time before people see that you're really two different men. You're not, you're not one man of integrity. You're two different guys. You're a guy who's concerned for public appearance and public reception and public approval, but you really don't have a concern for those that you live with. And it can't be that way. And this has been the demise of the church, in America especially, for a long time. There is nothing that will ruin your ministry than, quicker than, than being a man, number one, who's just a shell. You're not concerned for your heart. But secondly, that you're not stepping into the, the people that you live with, the, the, their lives in your home, and establishing a, a ministry there. Um, everything, the, the, the house of cards will come down. But if you positively, I'm speaking, shepherds your heart and you're caring for people, whatever happens after that outside of the home, guys, whether it's all God ends up giving to you platform-wise as a ministry to three people for the rest of your life, that will be an eternally significant ministry you have outside your home. It will be because of the kind of man you are, because of what he made you into. Or whether he increases the breadth and the length and the depth of your platform of ministry so that you reach thousands of people. Well, praise God. You, you drill down deep and be the right kind of man first. Live out that life in your home. And then step into anybody and everybody's life you can outside of that. Discipline four and build is about the qualifications. Um, the ministry leader in GBC prayerfully pursues the qualifications for deacon and elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And again, we've said this, I'll say it again. If you look through any of those qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 for elders and deacons, um, all you're going to be able to do easily is say, oh, that one falls into discipline one, uh, the next one, that one falls into discipline two, manages his own household well, uh, that one, a one-woman man, that's household, uh, that's character, uh, that's the way that he is with people uh, in ministry, they just all fall into these first three disciplines. We want you to be focusing on those. Discipline five is the hermeneutic. We want to make sure that as we are coming to the word of God to meet with the God of the word, we, we need to make sure that we're handling the word of God appropriately so. Um, and it's important because you're at Grace Bible Church and because the elders at Grace Bible Church are very concerned to handle God's word accurately. We want to make sure that you understand how it is that we believe that you should handle God's word, how you should interpret it. And we want to make sure that we're on the same page about how to do that at this church. And so we're going to call men, just like we're calling men to discipline themselves around uh, the heart, we want to call men to this hermeneutic. Guys, let's gather around this way of interpreting the Bible. Let's all of us stand together as, as one massive leadership of men and say this is the way that we believe God's word should be interpreted. And we want to start exposing you to that in, in build. H3, which comes after this, is really handles this a lot, lot more. And finally, discipline six is, is about... Um, Grace Bible Church, the vision and the purpose of Grace Bible Church. I would think that any church would want to focus on these things, but you're not at just any church, you're at this church. And you need to understand what this church uniquely has set up as its vision and its purpose, 
that we're going to focus on the glory of God in the cross of Christ in that brings about a transformation of life with the Holy Spirit that we're going to draw in, we're going to build up, we're going to send out for the sake of the gospel. Um, and we want you to be firing on all cylinders on these other disciplines, but at this church, at Grace Bible Church. And so Bill is, is concerned to develop leaders for the local church, for the local church. Why is the emphasis on the local church? Because that is what God is working through primarily in this world. Does God work through men who are uh, out ministering independent of the local church? Of course. He'll bless his gospel as it's preached anywhere. Does God work through my household and my family? Yes, he does. Absolutely. But there is one thing that Christ bled and died for. And when he shed his blood, he formed not a, a household, a family, a nuclear family. He formed a spiritual family, the church. His blood was shed, Ephesians 2, for that, to make a new man. And that is his means through which he is working in this world. And this church wants to take that seriously. And we need men to be the kind of men that they must be so that this church can be what this church must be. And you are a part of that. That doesn't neglect your household. That doesn't neglect your family. It makes you focus on your family so that you can be a part of, of a man of integrity. You can be a man of integrity in this church. Um, so we're looking to build leaders in this church. And you might look at yourself and say, ah, I'm not interested in being a, a leader in ministry, a leader in church. And I'm here to tell you, yes, you are. God made you a man. God put you in the church. And yes, you are. And you're going to lead somehow, some way. You may not be running a ministry. You may never become a deacon. You may never be an elder. But you're going to lead people. You're going to be a spiritual leader among people because you're a man. Because you're a man. You're not going to leave that for the women. We're not going to leave it for our wives to do and sit back and, and be passive. We're going to be leaders because God calls us to be leaders. Right? Does that make sense? Those of you who are younger, um, you, you, if you do not fight for this, and the, those of us who are a little older can tell you, you will default to being passive all the time. Any opportunity you get, you will be passive. This is what indwelling sin will do in you. You will let other people make decisions. You will let other people step up. You will let your wife do that someday. Your girlfriend will leave. Everybody will leave, leave except you. Work on it now, young man. Work on it now. Be the man. Lead. And lead in these ways by shepherding your heart, by shepherding your home, by stepping in the lives of people. That's biblical manhood. It's biblical manhood. With that in mind, first sermon is over. We need the next one. <laughs> Let's pray, though. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these are, these are weighty things that we are thinking about today. And I wish they were even more on my own heart each day. And I pray, Lord, that as we put our lives together this morning, our heads and our hearts, as we drag ourselves together to this place to sit in front of your word, Lord, I pray that you would, that you would push deeply down into our hearts, touch the hidden person of the heart that we are with your truth in a transforming way, change us, make us better men of Christ and of God, make us Convince us that we need to be leaders in the church. Open our eyes to 
see how it is that you want to accomplish this, Lord. It all begins with us paying attention to our hearts and paying attention to your word. Thank you, God, for intentionally designing from the very beginning that your voice and our hearts should be in a very close relationship. Your words and our hearts. And today we want to hear your voice through your word. Help us to not harden our hearts, but to soften them. And the only way we can do that is as we depend upon you to do it for us by your spirit. Lord, soften our hearts. We look away from ourselves to trust in you as we open your word. We plead with you to meet with us as we desire to meet with you. And we want you to transform us. Make us into the men you desire us to be. For our own sake, for eternity's sake for us, for Christ's sake, for our household's sake, and for this church's sake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We will... Um, I'm going to probably, for the most part, I don't know, we might take a break somewhere through uh, the message today. Um, but just depending, we may just kind of push all the way through. And So if you need to get up, the, you know the rules. Get up whenever you want to, whenever you need to. Uh, get something more to drink, get something more to eat. Bathrooms are out the door here and down the hall to the left. Uh, you can find them there and uh, just make yourself at home. If you have questions too, as we go through all of this, you are more than welcome to raise your hand. You can interrupt. You can just do whatever uh, helps you get my attention, okay? All right. Let's take a look at Hebrews 4 this morning. As we just noticed, uh, the obvious uh, build calls us as men to really focus on our hearts, right? And we are probably familiar with Hebrews 4.12. It may be a, a verse that you memorized a long time ago that if somebody starts it off, you could possibly maybe rattle off most of the rest of it. For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any sword. I mean, you... You can get the gist of what's there, right? I mean, you know this verse. It's, it's, a, it's a hallmark verse of the scriptures. Um, but God mentions that verse there in Hebrews 4.12. He mentions the heart there and the word of God there because of a greater subject that is on his mind than just the heart. Um, the verse starts off with the word for. That means it's explaining something that's in front of it. Just like John 3.16. What does John 3.16 say? Yeah, it doesn't say God so loved the world. It says for God so loved the world. We, we take verses that are powerful and, and it's good to be able to quote them. And it's not, I'm not trying to poo-poo that at all. Okay. But it starts off with four. It's an explanation of something. And so it's, this is an opportunity this morning for us to take a, a, a great verse and understand why it's in its place. What is it doing? How is it functioning? What is it there for? And uh, figure that out. And the thing that is on, the subject that is on the writer of, the, of Hebrews, on his mind, 
is salvation rest. Salvation. God's big salvation. He's going to talk about it in terms of rest. Rest. Now what I want to do is I actually want to start reading. We're going to focus on verses 11 to 13. But I I want to actually back up to chapter 3 verse 1. And I want you to to follow along carefully as as I read through it. Okay? Chapter 3 verse 1. Therefore. I'll tell you what. If you go um, back, see the, the, the picture number one column? If you put the back on the floor, is a, uh, an overhead projector. Move it out of the way that's in five dimensions. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also in his all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful, not as a servant merely, but as a son over his house, whose house we are. Are we in Moses' house? No, we're not. We are in Christ's house. And there is a difference. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And now he's hinting at what he's going after here. If we hold fast. You're in his house if you're you're holding fast. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his, what? Voice, those are God's words. Do not harden your hearts. Now, why would you even need to say that? Because there's this huge problem that we have because of sin, that when God speaks, our hearts go, don't want to listen. I'm going to harden it. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Who's he talking about here? Israel. When they are with Moses in the wilderness. Verse 9, that's where your fathers tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So then, the writer of Hebrews is going to start making some application. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Make a note of that. The living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this is a community thing. It's not just a personal, individual thing that you're going after and shepherding your heart. You need the body of Christ. I need the body of Christ to help with this. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? 
Indeed, did not all of those who come out who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Those are the ones that provoked him, right? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter that rest because of unbelief, disobedience, sin. Did those people hear God's words? Yeah, they heard God's words. And they hardened their hearts. And they failed to enter into God's rest, into God's salvation. Chapter 4, verse 1. He's going to apply again. Therefore, let us fear. Christians in the church, in Christ, let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. See, now he's getting to the point. I'm concerned for you. God says there's a promise of rest. And I... I think history might be repeating itself. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. That's a great verse. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, saying, Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as uh, has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day after that. Psalm 95, the writer of Hebrews says, is written by David in verse 7. What is he saying? Uh, Why is is, uh, David, long after the wilderness, long after Joshua, saying, today, If you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't miss God's rest. Why is David saying that? So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, verse 9. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And this is part of the main point of what the writer of Hebrews is after with his audience. Um, he's reminding them that, look, the way that, you are, the way that salvation is, is you rest. Primarily from what? Trying to do your own good works to establish your own self-righteousness. You don't do that. Rest from that. Quit it. Our verse is today. Therefore, verse 11, application again. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, that salvation. So that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. He's concerned that the history is going to repeat itself and is repeating itself. 
Verse 12, why should we be diligent to enter that rest? Because, verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's why you be careful to enter into God's rest because God's word is alive and it can tell you what's in your heart. It is telling you what's in your heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The main command, there's only one. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Okay, this is still just all way by of introduction. We're, not, we're just establishing our context here. Our passage today leads us to be accelerating towards something, to be passionate for something, to be diligent for something. And it's God's rest. It's salvation. And and I want this attitude of Hebrews 4.11 more to be thinking, oh, diligence. Diligence to enter that salvation rest. This is a call to you and me to keep our foot on the gas, to keep it pushed down, to keep pushing it down, to find the floor with our living in regards to God's salvation. Keep pushing it down. Don't take the foot off the accelerator. Keep accelerating, spiritually speaking. It calls you to wake up, guys, if you haven't been doing this. If you have been just coasting. I'm a Christian. Once saved, always saved. It's all good. And you just foot's off the gas and everything's just slowing down. This is a call to you to wake up today. It leads you to be in an accelerating attitude, to be accelerating, to be passionate for God's rest. Now, here's something that we need to understand about God's salvation. What he's talking about here is, this is God's salvation in the big sense, that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. All three of those things are simultaneously true. The fact that we are still being saved or that we will be saved does not make the fact that we were saved not count. God designed salvation to be this way, that it is an assured thing in the past, just as assured as it is that you must pursue even now. Just as assured as the promise is that you will rest ultimately someday. The other two don't offset the first. And the first doesn't mean you don't have to worry about the present or the future. This is the way God designed it, and you just need to get it in your head. Okay? This is where you take your logic and you say, I humble it, and I put it under God's logic in the Word. You have been saved if you are a Christian. You are being saved if you are a Christian, and you will be saved. Let me give you an example right from here. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, we have been saved. Christians have entered that rest. Look at verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. So, so when you rest from your works, you've entered into God's rest. Period. Done. You are in God's rest. In, in a past tense way. But you are still entering that rest. That's what our verse, verse 11 is all about. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Now, you and I would say, well, how can you even think that way? If you're in, aren't you in? Yes. 
You are. Keep being diligent. And we'll talk more about what all this means. But then uh, keep your hand in Hebrews 4, but go to Revelation 14. In regards to a future rest. Revelation 14, verse 13. There's doom for worshipers of the beast. In verse 13, he says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Those are believers at this horrible time in the future. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. So when you die, you enter into a rest that you currently yet do not have. So there is a sense in which you have rested, you are still to be diligently pursuing rest in Christ, and there will be a rest that you'll enter when you die. If you die before Christ's return for you. Here's the question, guys, to start off with. How would you say you are doing in terms of being passionate now to enter God's rest? This is a focus on the now. Let us be diligent, present tense, to enter that rest. What does the evidence of your life this past week reveal about your passion to be diligent to enter God's rest? Or could it be said of anybody watching you, that is a man, that is an obvious, that is so obvious in this man. He is passionate to enter God's rest. He is diligent to enter into God's salvation rest. That man is zealous for it. This was so important for the recipients of this letter. That they are Hebrew Christians. They, 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 they are Jews. They were under Judaism. And, and no doubt that they, there are many who are genuinely saved in this group. And some are not, just like in all churches. Just like in our church. There are some who are genuinely saved and there are some who are not. These Hebrew Christians, they left Judaism to follow Jesus Christ they heard his words, so to speak, when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'll teach you. I have words for you. And you will find, actually, that my yoke is something that's easy. That's right. Living in Christ is easy in the sense that you don't have to work to earn any righteousness. It's all been done for you. <laughs> and you get to walk with him in the power of the new man that he gives you. So these Hebrew Christians heard that in the gospel. But when their fellow countrymen who didn't become Christians, the Judaizers, began to persecute them for leaving Judaism, um, they took their foot off the accelerator, so to speak the writer of Hebrews is saying. And they don't realize how dangerous that is. And the danger that poses for them. And this kind of thing has happened before in the writer of Hebrews' mind. He knows that this has gone on before. Prior to the coming of Christ, there was a time when God's people in the past were tempted to not pursue God's great salvation with passion. They saw their great, powerful, redeeming God rip them out of the middle of Egypt, 
split the waters and redeemed them with a mighty right hand and put them in the wilderness. And they got slack. They took their foot off of the accelerator. And the writer of Hebrews is concerned that history is going to repeat itself again. So, what is this passage all about? In Hebrews 4, 11 to 13, we discover three passions of the Christian who diligently shepherds his heart into salvation's rest. Three passions. I'm going to ask you in terms of question. Number one, are you passionate to spend yourself, guys? Are you passionate, number one, to spend yourself to enter the rest that comes from God? That's verse 11. Are you passionate to spend yourself? As we parachute down in here into verse 11, we're struck immediately with the command, let us be diligent. There it is, just jumping right out in front of you. And this is what I mean when I say spend yourself. Are you, are you diligent? Are you going to spend yourself for this? The command means to be diligent. It means that there's nothing accidental. You don't accidentally be diligent ever. You have to plan and intentionally think, I'm going to be diligent right now. I'm going to work hard from start to finish. Nobody finishes a job and goes, wow, you know, I accidentally worked hard from start to finish. You have to be thoughtful about it to spend yourself. There's nothing reflexive about being diligent, about spending yourself. Rather, uh, this is an action that we are to be especially conscientious about. A very intentional action is being undertaken here. That's the idea. We are concerned to discharge an obligation when we see something like this, to be diligent for. This means that we're zealous. It means we're eager. It means we're diligent. It means we're thoughtful about taking pains to achieve what follows. And what follows? Let us be diligent to enter that rest. But notice um, the emphasis on the word that in verse 11. To enter that rest. Not just any rest, in other words. And this is why I wanted to read chapter 3 to where we are here. Because the writer of Hebrews has been writing and talking about a rest already. And he's now not talking about a new one. He says, that rest. The rest that I was already talking about. And the therefore, at verse 11, also confirms that a big backup needs to take place before we really go any further. The sense of urgency in the command to let us be diligent, spend yourself. That command, that sense of urgency, the specific rest in mind, and the therefore all call us to back up. And this is a very big rest in the mind of the writer of Peter, as we've already talked about. This is not a spiritual catnap, okay? This is not taking a nap. This is the deep rest of God in Christ. And this is what God has always had in mind for his people throughout redemptive history. It's this big rest he's talking about. And here's what's great about what God did. To help those who believed in God to enter that big rest that he has, salvation's rest, God gave them smaller rests. Smaller rests along the way that would help them think about the bigger rest, the more important rest, spiritual rest, that salvation was. It was really a very merciful thing for God to do this. It's like giving a kid training wheels and, or a trike before letting him just ride the bike. I wanna, I'm going to give you something that's like it. It's not the same thing, but it's like it. There's similarities in it that will make it easier for you to get, for you to be able to spiritually and mentally digest so that when you finally get the big thing, the right thing, you'll get it. It'll make more sense. So in God's mind, 
the smaller rests that he gave along the way, they were never the end. They were a means to a greater end, to point to something greater. They were to point beyond themselves to a rest that was greater. Let me give you some examples. You're probably already thinking of them in your mind. What are, what's one of the smaller rests that God gave his people in the Old Testament? The Sabbath day. They were to do no work on that day. They were to rest. There's a weekly Sabbath day. So get this. They're in cycles. And this is the genius of God. God is so merciful. He's so kind. He's so condescending to people that he would give to them a cycle that once a week you would have rest in front of you. Put in front of you. You might have to work like a dog for six days, but God said there's one day you're going to rest. If you're Israel. You're going to rest. I'm going to put it in front of you. You get in your tent and you do nothing. You just rest. Every week that would trip you up. And you would stop. And you would rest. So that little wheel is going fast once a week. What's, what's the next rest after that? In seven years. So now every seven years, there's a rest that comes. How long is that rest for, for the land? It's a year. So in the sixth year, you're going to have an amazing crop. It's going to be so great that it's going to actually last you into the eighth year. Because you've got to plan again in year eight. And you're going to be eating. That's, so, I mean, you've got this weekly thing going rest, 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 rest. And you've got this seven-year thing going rest. 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 You got it? When's the next rest? 50 years. So then you've got this big rest that's going to hit you once in your lifetime. Once in your lifetime. So God wants to hit you every week with a rest that reminds you. He wants to hit you every seven years. How many times is that going to hit you in a lifetime? Ten, maybe? Roughly? And then there's going to be one big rest that's going to hit you once in your lifetime, and that's it. The year of Jubilee. Israel was given those rests when? At Mount Sinai with Mosaic Law. They had those smaller rests where? In the wilderness. They had them. They had them there. They possessed them there. God didn't say, you know what, we're not going to actually practice these rests until you get to the promised land. No, he said, do them now. Do them now. And so they began to do that. It was all prior to entering the promised land. That's what, they received it when they received the law from Moses. And notice the concern of the writer of the Hebrews in um, Hebrews 3, verse 7 to 11. He's, he's quoting Psalm 95. Today, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, uh, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. I was angry with this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And you could say, wait a minute. They have rest. Not just one. Those people back then in the wilderness, what do you mean, God, they can't enter? Are you saying they can't um, observe the Sabbath? Is that what you're saying? No. What is God thinking? 
I've got a bigger rest. Even though they possess smaller rests already, I've got a bigger one in mind that I'm more concerned about. And because of their hardness of heart, they're not getting that one even though they rest every seventh day. You understand? They had a whole series of cycles of rest. So what rest is God concerned that they might not enter? He's not saying, I'm not concerned that, I'm concerned that you might not be observing the Sabbath. And I'm not concerned that you might not be paying attention to the seventh year or the year of Jubilee. He's saying, you guys are missing my salvation. It's the greater rest of salvation in God that the smaller rests were pointing to that God's concerned about. That they were to help Israel see their need for a greater rest. And, and, and God actually then gives them even another rest. Okay, we, we talked about Sabbath day. We talked about the seventh year. We got the year of Jubilee. What's, what's the next rest that he gave them? Anybody want to venture a guess? What? I didn't hear it. Yeah, coming in the land. Joshua, and in fact, he said this in chapter 4, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, when, how, did, how, did, how did Joshua give them rest? When he portioned out the land to them. They conquered it, and they portioned out the land, and now as wanderers in the wilderness, they can what? So he gave them four smaller rests. But notice what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 6 and, uh, and following. Therefore, application, since it remains for some to enter it, those guys had all kinds of cycles of smaller rests, and they had trouble entering it. And those who formerly had God, uh, good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a day saying, Today, through David, after so long a time, just as had been said before. Oh, so now what he's doing when he quotes Psalm 95 is he's saying, Wait a minute. David is saying those words today. Well, wait a minute. They have the Sabbath rest. They've got the seven-year rest. They've got... The year of Jubilee rest. They've got the land. David conquered everything. He had everything from the, the Tigris and the Euphrates all the way to the Great Sea. I mean, he had it all. They had all of that rest. And David is saying, um, I have a concern, just like God had a concern in the wilderness. David is saying to his people of his day, people today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts because I'm concerned. I see something happening among my day as King David. Some of you are going to miss what God has for us in salvation rests. So that's what he's pointing out. The writer of Hebrews is pointing out that David is the one who said this. History repeated itself under David. What happened in the wilderness is happening under David's reign. But that's not the point. That's not the ultimate end of the lesson for the writer of Hebrews. What's he saying? And now, just like in the wilderness, just like under David, the writer of Hebrews is now saying what? I'm concerned again. I'm concerned again. A pattern, an unfortunate, terrible pattern is developing or is being revealed to us with those that God intends to save for himself. Listen, God is intending to save Israel. God is intending to save the people under David. God is intending to save the people in the church. And he's saying, oh man, there's always a danger. There's always a danger. God's big salvation rest that he offers, it seems to be in perpetual danger of being missed. 
by the ones that he reaches out to. Even though Israel had all of the cycles of rest in Mosaic law, and even though they had some kind of rest with Joshua as they entered the promised land, there was still a concern that salvation's rest was being missed. He said in verse 9 and 10 of Hebrews 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Even though the Joshua gave them the land, there still remains a Sabbath rest that they don't have. For the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works. Oh, that rest. I don't have to work for it. I rest and I am safe by entering into Christ in the gospel. It's a bigger rest that is now in the mind of the writer of Hebrews in verse 11. He says, that rest. Let us be diligent to enter that one. For him in his day, the same concern has arisen again. His readers, Christians, the persecuted church, they are in danger of missing the greater rest of salvation. I'll tell you what, that is a far greater danger to them than what any other person or fellow Jew might do to them in terms of persecution. The perpetual danger of Christians in any age since this time is the continuing danger that we will coast when God has established that his salvation rest requires believers to be active, to continue to be diligent, to be sure that salvation's rest has overtaken them. Now let's allow the context of Hebrews here in a bigger way to inform our idea of what what would it look like then to be diligent to do this? What would it mean to spend yourself? It better start with at least this. You can write, I'll give you two now and I'll give you a third one later here. What does it mean to spend yourself? It, It could mean this. It better mean this. Spend yourself to know the gospel. Spend yourself to know the gospel. You have no opportunity to diligently enter the rest if you do not spend yourself to know the gospel. To know what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners. Let me give you some examples from the writer of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory, Jesus is. He is the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power when he made purification of sins. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's the gospel. Christ made purification for sins. Chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see him... Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There's the gospel. By grace he tastes death for us. Chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and so that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Being freed, being freed in the gospel of Christ. There's there's the gospel. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Here it is to make satisfaction or propitiation for the sins of the people for him to satisfy God's wrath. You need to spend yourself to know these things. There's no chance of entering into God's salvation rest unless you spend yourself to know the propositions, the truth statements, the facts of the gospel. You must spend yourself to know the gospel. If you're not spending yourself to know It's evidence right now that you're not being diligent to enter the rest. You're just not. There's no way to do it. So what does it mean to spend yourself to enter God's rest? It means you've got to spend yourself to know the gospel. 
But secondly, not just merely know it. What does it mean to spend yourself? It means to spend yourself in entrusting your life to the gospel. To believe the gospel. To trust the gospel. Biblical salvation is about you and me diligently entrusting ourselves to those propositions that he brought about purification for sins. That he took on death and conquered death. That he is a merciful and faithful high priest who made propitiation for us. I have to, to be saved, you, to be saved, must trust God that that's true. That he is a God who keeps his promises. That if he said that's what he did, he did it. You entrust yourself to that. You must know those propositions and you must entrust your life to those propositions. Outside of you. Yeah. Uh, to believe the gospel or to entrust yourself to the gospel. Those are gospel propositions outside of you. They are truths outside of you. They are realities outside of you. And they bring about an inevitable, unavoidable impact and transformation inside of you. And you must entrust yourself to them. Now, this is not a diligence, if you'll notice, in the writer of Hebrews... That springs from an uncertainty about whether or not you're saved. Or about whether or not the gospel saves. You see, you, you can be taught to be diligent because it's uncertain about whether or not the gospel would really save you. That is heresy beyond heresy. The diligence that is found here is not because it's questionable about whether or not the gospel saves. Now, there's no doubt the gospel saves. It's just that God built into salvation that you entrust yourself and you rest from your works and currently you make yourself diligent to be sure that the gospel propositions are being entrusted by you. You continue to trust them. Why? Indwelling sin is so dangerous. You can be deceived by sin at any point. Chapter uh, 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the what of sin? The deceitfulness of sin. Guys, you must battle your deceit in your sin all of the time. The diligence exists because of that, not because of the uncertainty of the power of the gospel diligence. It's God's intention that diligence and self-spending springs from certainty of what the gospel is. I believe the gospel does this for me. I'm going to keep pursuing it. Does God teach us anywhere else in scripture? Keep your hand in Hebrews 4. Let's go to Philippians. You know these verses, right? Go to Philippians 1. Verse 6. Philippians 1 6. For I am confident of this very thing. What's he confident of? Does it have anything to do with you? Where's his confidence? In God. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We often stop reading there. Read verse 7. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. 
since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And this is all by God's grace. But we all know what he says in chapter 2, don't we? Turn there. Verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as, you as, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he marries the two thoughts. Okay, so wait. Paul, which is it? Are you confident about what God does, or are you telling me that I should work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Which is it? And what does he do with those two things? He fuses them together. You never let somebody drive a wedge between those two things because God doesn't drive a wedge between those two things. They are not in contradiction of one another. They complement one another. Because God is at work in you, you work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You see, that's the way God determines salvation to be. You might want to have made it a different way, but you didn't, and God didn't look to you to set it up. He did it himself. So we entrust ourselves to the way that he set up salvation, and he says, I will finish what I started you. And by the way, work it out with fear and trembling. That's the way it is. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying in chapter 4, verse 11. Let us be diligent to enter that rest that we already entered. You can say, I don't understand. And you say, here's what I'd say to you. Get over it. Just get over it. This is the way God made it. And you have to shepherd your heart to his divine saving logic. Yes. So if I was speaking to a new believer and he accepted Christ, so he not salvation is his. So you have the salvation, but yet we need to work out our salvation where again we're going to receive that salvation. So just because I'm not very smart, how would I break that down and be able to share that community That's a good question. The question is, if you have a new believer who uh, is fresh on the have been saved and is now beginning to work out the present being saved for the hopes of finally in, in the future the biggest salvation that can be experienced, how do you help them with that? You, what ideas do you guys have? What would you do with somebody who's a new believer to help them understand? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's funny. Mark, what do you think? Okay, from what, what are they? Uh, your, your salvation from sin. Uh-huh. Uh, your salvation from your, your remaining sinful choices and your salvation from hell. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to go with the three P's. I like the <laughs> Yeah. What's the what's the what's the P word for the past? We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We have also been saved from in the past the power of sin to enslave us as a slave master. Does it still have influence on us? Can it still be powerful? Yes. But can it be powerful to enslave us again if we're in Christ? No. That's Romans six. It's a great place to go for a new believer. Go to Romans 6. Walk through that 
um, help them understand what the gospel does and what the grace of God does in terms of sanctification. Uh, there's one more P word, though, that we really focus on now, that the gospel has not delivered us yet from. And it's the what? The presence of sin. So what does what do you, in, in terms of working out your salvation still with fear and trembling, which of the three are you battling? Penalty, power, or presence? It's the, it's the presence. These first two have already been fought, not by you, but by Christ. The penalty was paid by Christ. He broke the power of sin as a slave master over you. So what are you fighting now? The presence of sin. This is called sanctification. This is sanctification. So where do you fight? You, you come back to the gospel, undergird your life with the gospel realities and truths that are in the gospel of what God did to save us, and you continue to fight from there those sins from a new man creation, from a, a new heart. You fight for obedience to Christ, obedience to Christ, love for Christ. You discipline your heart to shepherd your heart to the word of God, to meet with God. You care for people in your home. You minister to people with the gospel. You, you fight for obedience. You do all of those things. Um, you're just trying to help them develop even spiritual disciplines that awaken them to how to fight these things uh, more and better. Any other thoughts you guys have on what you could do to help a new believer like that? Nope. Three what? Three verses for you? Ah, for the penalty of sin. Um, not right now, but I will. And you guys, if you can think of some, let's put them together. We'll uh, put them together. Nick. And that's where, that's why I ran to the heart. You shepherd the heart to the Word of God. Uh, discipline one. You want to teach them how to do that. There's going to be no, there's going to be no hope for fighting the presence of sin if you're not shepherding your heart to the Word of God. You're going to be overtaken. Yeah. If you want to understand better the connection between 
being saved, and then what we are supposed to do as we are saved. Um, you can go back and listen to our messages in, he, in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 20 to 24, going into 25. Uh, Paul walks through that. Um, he talks about what he taught them when he was with them, when he was preaching the gospel to them. He um, And then says, now i got a whole bunch of commands for you. And the commands follow at a critical point. They don't precede other things. They, they come at some point, but they, there are some crucial things that have to take place first in the life of a, of a sinner before commands can even be put in front of them. And, and it's important to understand that. Let's move on so that we can uh, keep making our way. Um, so here's let's summarize this first point back in Hebrews 4. Listen, guys, there's nothing accidental about you spending yourself. Um, and Scott, could I have you probably tick up that over there a little bit? I think it's going to start snowing in here. <laughs> there's, there's nothing accidental about us spending ourselves. Um, guys, we have to actually be especially conscientious, intentional. There has to be a zeal to enter into this greater salvation rest that's been achieved for us by Christ. Um, and the question that you got to ask yourself, is this my passion? Is this the kind of man I am? Am I a passionate man for this? Am I spending myself to enter the rest that God has for me, that God is for me, that God will provide yet for me in his son? Uh, did you spend yourself at one point in your life in the past to, to enter in? Or maybe you started the coast? not working out your salvation with fear and trembling, well, it's time to put the stake in the ground and move on and um, into spending yourself now. Uh, you can write down Revelation 6.11. It's, it's also another uh, future rest that goes along with Revelation 14.13. I'll let you guys look at that. And I, I told you I'd give you three, what does it mean to spend yourself in salvation? Uh, it also looks like the last half of verse 11. Why do you do this? So that no one will fall through the same example of disobedience. There's a pattern that's being repeated here that the writer of Hebrews is concerned about. It's disobedience. What is he seeing in the writer of Hebrews, or in the, in the people, that the Hebrews that he's writing to? He's seeing disobedience. He's seeing disobedience. They've taken their foot off of the gas of obedience, of being diligent to enter the rest, and they are living disobedient lives. And he's saying, you want to know what it means to spend yourself? It's to be this. One way to ask yourself this, it would be this way. Is it your passion to be concerned about the devastating power of unchecked disobedience in your lives, guys? Disobedience that's just going unchecked by you. You better be passionate to address that. It can't be unchecked. It has to be checked. Hebrews 3.18 And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? I'll tell you who. Those who were disobedient. How about chapter 4, verse 6? Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of what? Disobedience. So Christian, be diligent to enter that rest so that you won't fall through the same example of disobedience. What does it mean to spend yourself? It means to be concerned about disobedience. Guys, it, it, where there's disobedience in, in, in our lives, we've got to be concerned about that. There's no toy to play with. It, it's, 
it's nothing to put over in the corner and kind of let it be there and, and, and fool yourself, deceive yourself into thinking, oh, it'll just stay there. Sin never stays self-contained. It never stays self-contained. You can build whatever kind of wall or fence or brick wall or bunker to put it in and keep it there, and it'll find a way out. Unchecked disobedience must be fought against. You've got to be diligent against that. You preach the gospel to your disobedience all of the time. Fight your disobedience with the gospel. That's proof that you're passionate to spend yourself. When you see disobedience, you want proof if you're passionate to enter that rest? You fight your disobedience with the gospel. And here's what I find, guys, in my own house and my own life. I am far more concerned too often with the disobedience in my children than I am with my own disobedience. And if you step into ministry in the church, you are going to find yourself as you are in small group, as you are in ministries leading people, their disobedience is going to bug you to no end. It's going to be so plain to you and you can't even see the nose on your own face. So guys, you have to use the word of God to be aware of your own disobedience. All right, so is this your passion? to spend yourself. Number two, and I promise the other ones go much, much faster. Search yourself with the word of God. Number two, are you passionate to search yourself with the word of God? Here we are. This is the big picture of this verse, and then we'll unpack it in detail. It starts off with an explanation. For, and this is the explanation given for why the readers need to be diligent. Here's the short answer. Do you want to know why you need to be diligent, guys? Why do you need to be diligent? Because of God's word. That's right, because of the word of the Lord, because of the word of God. You must understand what God's word is all about and what it does, what it is doing, whether you're even aware of it or not. You need to know what God's word is doing, what it is and what it is doing. And most importantly, what it's doing with your heart. And you need to spend yourself to enter salvation's rest because of what God's word is doing. The writer of Hebrews, he's already been making this whole point. He's already pointed out the relationship between the divine words of God and the human heart. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. You see, there's a connection between the two. He talks about the heart in in verse 10. They always go astray in their heart. In in chapter 3, verse 12, take care lest any one of you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 15 He says it again, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 4, verse 2, he talks about the word. We have had good news preached to us. The the word they heard didn't profit them because it wasn't united by faith. Verse 7 of chapter 4, he says it again, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Look, his whole point is the word of God and the human heart must be together. You've got to watch how they're interacting. God has intended that his words would interact and interact with and intersect my heart. And the problem that's being revealed here by the writer of Hebrews is that there is a human propensity to make your hearts unreceptive to God's words. Did you get that? That's the propensity he's concerned about. That you will make your heart numb, hard, unfeeling towards the word of God. And now the author has told us how effective the word of God is with the hearts. 
verse 12 of chapter 4. So the call of the writer of Hebrews in this entire section is really towards this, guys. If God's word is concerned to be speaking to your heart, and it's doing this, if it's searching out your heart, the inner recesses of your heart, then guys, what should you do with the word of God? Befriend it. Make peace with God's word. Come to it and say, I recognize what you do. You reveal what's on the inside of me, and I want to work with you. I don't want to fight against you, word. Do what you do and help me to help you. I don't want to argue against your word. God, help me to embrace your word. Participate with God's word. We might even say search yourself with God's word. That's this whole point. See yourself, guys, as God sees you. Enter God's salvation rest. Entering that depends on it. And the only ones who enter the fullness of God's salvation rest are those who actually humble themselves to participate in God's word, with God's word, to receive God's word. Those who passionate or who are passionate to search themselves out with God's word. And now let's look at the specifics here. That's the big idea of what's going on with verse 12. The word of God is living. And if you were to look at this verse in, um, in, in Greek... You would finish verse 11 um, so that no one will fall through the same example of disobedience. For living! It's the first word that comes out in the Greek. It's what's on the writer of the Hebrews' mind. Alive! There's something alive and you don't even know it. It's alive! The word of God is living. God's word is living because, chapter 3, verse 12, he is the living God. And it is alive to make sure that you enter salvation rest. God's word is alive to make sure that you enter salvation's rest, guys. It lives to penetrate you. It lives to search you. It lives to discern your heart. It lives to achieve its scrutinizing gaze into the deepest recesses of who you are. Now, Something can be alive, but be in a coma. Something can be alive, but be paralyzed. Something can be alive, but be hibernating. Something can be alive, but be in a cocoon. And that is not God's word, because the next word is living and active. It means energetically alive is God's word. God's word is energetically alive with God's intentions and purposes in your heart. And what you say next after living and active is everything. Living and active. Now what I want you to do, I love this illustration um, because I think on so many levels it it pictures our day. Imagine that you're at at a big football game later today and you're in the middle of, of this massive crowd, independent wills all around you of which you are one. And someone next to you blows up a big, soft beach ball. And they do what you see people done, and you've probably been a part of this. They start to bat it around the crowd. And that big, soft beach ball, it's light, it's soft, it's harmless. And it starts going in every direction. It it shoots off really fast in one direction, only to be 
jutted off into another direction sharp by what another independent will did with it and then another independent will says and hits it back up this way and it's just zigzagging all over the place sharp contrasting angles of trajectory going on and on that beach ball is living and active it just looks like it's alive it's also soft and harmless and it is also um, subject to every will that comes into contact with it. It does whatever the will of the person does that hits it. And that is, in my opinion, the way that the postmodern church is today with God's word. We all gather together and somebody blows up the word of God and says, here's what the word of God means to me. Boom! Subject to my will. And I bat it over to you and then Rick in the back says, and here's what it means to me. Bow! And he hits it back over this way. And this is what we do as Christians in the postmodern world. This is what the word of God means to me. And we're all sovereign over it. And it's soft and it's harmless. It doesn't hurt me. It doesn't hurt you. And we just bat it around. And in the middle of that, I want somebody to stand up, take out a big two-foot-long sharp sword, and just throw it up in the air. And watch what happens with people. <laughs> Let's see where the independent wills are now. I got it! Yeah, in ways that you have no idea. Can you imagine somebody in a crowd at a football game pulling out a two-foot-long sword, sharper on either side, as, a, as, a, as sharp as a razor, picking it up? What are people going to do? They're not going to sit there. <laughs> All of a sudden, those distinct wills don't feel so supreme anymore when stuff like that happens. This is a living and active word, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it doesn't say that it is a sharp sword. It says it is sharper than any or all two-edged swords. This is the, that shorter sword of the Roman soldier um, that he used for hand-to-hand combat. Some even think that it's a, it was something like that was used for uh, even to do uh, primitive surgery. Um, very, very sharp. It's the sharpest weapon in the, in the Roman soldier's arsenal. And the sword was meant for one hand, not for a bunch of hands to get on it, one hand, to be directed by one will, that soldier. And God's word is exactly that way. When we come into presence of God's words, guys, you don't put your hand on it. God's hand is already on it. It is his sword. It is alive and it's active and it's sharp. It is to be directed by one will only, and it's not you. And we should give no impression to ourselves when we open up God's word or when we are in discussion with anyone else that our wills are supreme over that sword. I have guns. I like guns. And I have kids. And when my kids want to look at the guns, I get them out. And we are very careful. Because it's a gun. And it takes responsibility. It takes humility. It takes understanding to be very careful. There, there, needs, there, should, be no, there should be no cavalier attitude when the word of God is open, guys. Here's, here's, what, here's how I have sinned in this. I'll tell you this. I, I find myself at times with guys getting into theological discussions and after a while if you get going on it 
and you can get in this little, even a, maybe even a little spat about it. Man, we're all talking like, no, 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 let, let me show you how this works. And let me, let me, and no, no, my turn. And we start going after the next thing you know, we're batting it around like it's a beach ball. And instead, when if we really understand what the word of God is, guys, the way that God designed it to be, and what's at stake, salvation, rest, we're going to have those conversations with a much different attitude. We're going to be humble men. And we're going to say, uh, this is what I read. I think this is what, what God said here. Um, I want to be really careful. Your turn. It's going to be completely different attitude. Scott? Yes. If the two-edged sword is that no one's right is described in Revelation. I don't. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to. Um, I'd have to look at it. And if I could see it in the Greek, I could tell you. This is the word makaira uh, in, in Greek. Uh, but you can't see that in English, obviously. So guys, I just want to encourage us. Let's let's be humble, and let's place let's let's have theological conversations in a way that gives the kind of attitude that we believe that there is a two-edged sword in this conversation, not a, a beach ball. Alex. So my immediate thought is, so now I have this fear of being judged by the Yeah. Um, that you, God has us in a condition in Christ where there needs to be um, some cuts made so that we can see uh, the disease that is still within us, and that's where He's going. Um, you can, if you want to spare yourself of the pain of the cut, go right ahead, and the disease will grow, and you'll never see it. And it'll grow, and it'll overtake you, and it will ruin you. Um, so I think you live with the cut. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, I mean, it's coming back to the gospel though, and understanding what you did, because you can't. I think kind of what Alex is saying, you get to a point where you're beating yourself up, yeah. and you lose the gospel. Right. The point is to open yourself up with the word, so that you can apply the gospel. Um, uh, and rest in what it says and cleanse, uh, get the cleansing that, that Christ gives where we confess our sins to him. John, uh, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Yeah, I, you're not doing it to, to uh, like I just read, uh, if you're doing um, McShane's and you're reading where it is, you know, we, didn't we just read about the, the, the Baal priests lacerating themselves? And you can still see there are cultures today that still do this. They beat themselves with swords on the head. To make themselves believe that that's just that's just you know crazy. That's not what we're talking about. What the, God's word does. You you cut the word of God is doing this. God is doing this with His word. He's He's splitting us open to the very inner recesses of who we are, um, so that we can see what's going on. And the description just keeps on building. And let's let's get to that. It's it's sharp in order to penetrate deeply inside us to. And to do it accurately so. You need a sharp knife to do it. And there's lots of debate here in verse 12 about what is meant by the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. And I actually think it's, it's rather simple. Sometimes we can miss um, the forest that's going on here because of these, these two trees of soul and spirit and, and uh, joints and marrow. But I think the point is simple. It's this. Um, 
what I don't have the ability to see or discern, to get to, to be able to distinguish. You know, I don't know how to distinguish between soul and spirit. And in their days, they didn't know how to distinguish between joints and marrow. Um, the Word of God does know how to do that. He gave a spiritual example. He gave a physical example. The Word of God lives actively with a sharpness to penetrate, to tell the difference between things. What I can't see with my own eyes, which is the inward stuff of stuff like joints and marrow, God's Word lives actively with a kind of sharpness to penetrate that and to reveal it to me. What's hidden from my sight is not hidden at all from the Word of God's sight. This is a, a, kind of an accumulation of terms to express the inward part of man that God's Word has no trouble saying at all. And it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is what he's really getting after. What he's saying is, is God's Word is the great critic of your heart, guys. It's legal terminology that he's using here. The Word of God does not open me up at the heart level to then sit back and then wait for another opinion. Hmm. Well, I opened it up, but I'd like to get a second opinion on what I see. Uh, what do you think? It doesn't do that. The Word of God opens us up, and it judges, and it discerns. It, it discerns what's going on there. It discerns motives. We're opened up so it can give its opinion, so it can give its criticism positively and negatively. It opens us up so it can rebuke us, so that it can approve us. Maybe, maybe you can identify with this that, that goes on in my own heart. I, guys, I, how well do you think you can know your motives? I, my thoughts, my motives, my intentions are so mixed with good thoughts and good desires, good motives, and with sinful desires bound up in them and tangled together in a deep maze in the labyrinth of my heart. I mean, I have trouble discerning myself, what my heart is motivating me to do. In and of myself, I can't search myself to see what's going on there. But here's what God is telling us. What is he telling us? God's word does that with precision. It enables me then to search myself, to see my heart, and let it speak for me, to me. So then it would seem to me that it would be wise to participate with God's word so that I can see what's going on there. And it would be completely foolish of me to think that I could bluff my way past God. That I could have secrets hidden from God in my heart. It would be foolish for me to think that I can, I can keep thoughts to myself and God won't know them. Motives, I can keep them to myself from God. Here's the blunt reality, guys. What I hold most secret in my heart, the God of the Word finds with the Word of God and He subjects it to His scrutinizing gaze in His words. So what should we do? Shepherd your heart to the Word of God so that God in the Word can reveal what's in your heart so that God in, can comfort you in your heart with the gospel. Look, what you find in your heart, it's not going to be fun a lot of times, most of the time perhaps. 
This is why you've got to go back to the word of God to bring the gospel deep into your heart. And this is the explanation. Again, guys, why is verse 12 there? It's to explain why we should spend ourselves to enter salvation's rest. It's because God's word is searching us. God's word is searching us. His word has always functioned that way. In the wilderness, that's what his words were doing, coming out of his mouth to Israel through Moses. And the warning existed a long time ago. Today, if you hear my voice, David said again, don't harden your hearts. So what should we do? Yeah, you could try to fight God's word, guys. You could try to adopt an attitude of like you're sovereign over it, like it's a soft beach ball. Don't do it. People have done that. Very religious people do that, have done that, and they have perished eternally. Or you could plead with God for a different attitude before his word. You could, you could plead for a careful heart, a humble attitude, a, a participative attitude and say, God, I want to see what your word sees. And so that's why it's open this morning. That's why I drug my carcass out of bed. And that's why I want to get near to you in your word before I get near to anybody else because I know it can see what I must see today. Please help me. Closely related to the second passion is the last one, number three. I know I told you four. They're all going to be four, but there's pretend there's three right now. Strip yourself. Number three, are you passionate to strip yourself? Okay, so we are to spend ourselves in verse 11. We uh, should be passionate to search ourselves with the word of God. Number two, and then are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the word? So you search yourself with the word of God and you strip yourself before the God of the word. That's what verse 13 is all about. There There are seven creatures hidden from his sight. No, it doesn't say that. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things, 14 things are laid open and bare. No, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This describes now, uh, if verse 12 described what the word of God sees, what does verse 13 describe? What the God of the word sees. If verse 12 describes how we truly are before the word of God, verse 13 describes how we truly are before the God of the word. Are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the word? So if you've searched yourself with God's word and it has revealed that you're wearing a mask or having a shield up to protect yourself so maybe others can't see what's going on to disguise your heart, There's no use in pretending that God doesn't see through it. There's no use in pretending. You and I are not hidden from his sight at the hidden person of the heart. Rather, actually what this is saying is that you're open and laid bare. It's saying that you're naked before God. Spiritually, you are naked before God. Masking who you are, disguising your heart, we can't do that. We are before God. He sees us as we are. And trying to mask ourselves before God is about as effective as a little toddler playing hide and seek from mommy and going, Mommy, you can't find me. Wow. Remember that? You seen that with your kids? You remember? Those of you who haven't? I want you to go hide now. Okay, Daddy. You can't see me. That is a foolish little heart that has fooled itself into thinking because... I can't see God, my parents. My parents can't see me. 
Everything is open. Laid bare to the eyes of him. It's difficult to tell what the precise meaning is here, but it, it, bound up in it is this. It, at a minimum, it's, it's parallel to the idea of being naked or vulnerable. Most likely, it's a, it's a lifting up of the chin. Um, and and the, the, it was used in a lot of different settings. It was used, uh, this word laid bare was used in wrestling matches or in gladiator type fests. That when the victor was conquering his foe, the last thing he did is he lifted up the neck and guess what? There's a very, if you could get your wrestler in a hold where you pulled the head back and the neck was exposed, Uncle. You tap out. It's a very, very vulnerable place. You and when you have that happen, it was also used um, in sacrificial language. You took the chin of the lamb and you lifted it up and you slit its throat. Laid bare. You, you don't feel very much like you're in control when somebody has you in that. You feel very submissive. You feel very powerless. That's the point. That's the point, guys. God sees, and when you are thinking rightly about what God's word says about you, you don't walk around cocky. We don't walk around arrogant. We walk around very... God is in control. He sees me as he sees me. We are seen exactly as we truly are. And you know what's really good, guys? I need this. I need this. You know what this tells me? This tells me that God sees me. I need to see that I am seen by God. I need to tell myself that daily. I'm driving in my car all by myself. I need to say to myself... Self, God sees you right now. You're laid open and bare before him. I need my eyes lifted up to to see his penetrating eyes seeing through every single one of my masks that I can put on at different times. Remember this when your kids were small, guys, and you needed to uh, talk to them seriously about maybe it's a discipline issue or maybe it's just something that you were concerned about. They started to run out in the street and you grabbed a hold of them and you pulled them back and you, and you tried to talk to them but they were doing this thing, you know, looking all around you and you're right in front of them. And so then you grab their face and their eyes do this, go all the way around, <laughs> right? And if somehow you could figure out how to grab those little eyeballs, you would. <laughs> Just ever so gently. <laughs> there's a spot right there. That's a sleeper hole. You do that a <laughs> Spock move. <laughs> yeah, you. This is what the idea is, is: is grabbing the chin, lifting up. God, look into my eyes. I'm gonna. I want to. I'm acknowledging that I know that you can see into me. That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing for us guys. So if he sees you stripped down to the heart, God, or down to the heart, guys. What what should you do? You got one of two things. You can fight him. Or not. He sees you anyway. You can fight him. 
or you can surrender. Drop the mask. Drop the disguise. Talk to God. Communicate to him that you understand that he sees you for what you truly are. It's a liberating, freeing moment when you can say, God, I know you see me for what I am. Here's the mask I've had. I don't want it anymore. I've fooled my wife. I've fooled my kids. I've fooled my roommates. I've fooled my small group leader. I've I've fooled my pastors, my elders. But God, I understand that um, you've seen right through them the whole time, and I'm done. Strip yourself. Strip yourself, because nothing is hidden from God in the end. And we have to, verse 13, we have to give an account to him. Everything is open, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That means we have to give an account to him. God already sees everything inside. There's one more passion that's not in our verses, but it's in line with just what we know of the scriptures and the gospel. Number four, guys, you've got to be passionate. If all this is true, you've got to be passionate to soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we've already talked about this, but if you didn't notice, verse, verses 11 to 13 are a sobering warning. It's not a description of a beautiful park that you're on a walk through. The writer of Hebrews is very concerned there's something very dangerous going on. Disobedience is gaining ground in the lives of these Christians. And the kind of thing that you bring to people who are like that is not a a warm and soft and gentle rub on the back. It's a, be diligent. Write down 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And you can look at this later. Guys, this is so important. Um, you don't look at it. I'm going to look at it because I, I can't remember how it starts off at the top of my head. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Guys, in the effort and the desire to be gracious and to be kind, that does not mean that you throw admonition out the window. Admonishments or warnings. You hang on to warnings. But you got to be wise about who you warn. It doesn't say here... Okay, turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. Got to look at it. I'm sorry. We have to, we have to see this. Because there, this, is, there, this is wisdom in ministry. How to minister to people. And the writer to, uh, to the Hebrews is doing this. He's practicing this. We urge you, brethren, here's how he wants you to, the church to care for the church. Admonish the unruly. Look around you. See anybody unruly living a, a, a reckless life? What do you say to them? I warn you. That's what you say to them. See anybody else who's faint-hearted? Trembling knees? Devastated by something? What do you do to them? Warn them! No. You encourage. You encourage. But listen, you laugh, but guys, we, we get this stuff all mixed up. We put the warnings in the wrong places because we're not discerning about the people we're, we're caring for. Sometimes we, we, I just want to be a gracious man, and you've just been a really disobedient boy and man, and I want to, I just want to encourage you. 
to look to Jesus and, and come back to the gospel. No, you know what? If you're, a, if you're unruly, you need a warning, God says. This is Paul's instruction to the church. It's how the church cares for the church. Look for unruly people. Make sure they're unruly people, uh, an unruly person. Ask lots of questions before you take out the gun and give them the warning. Ask lots of questions. Get all of the evidence you need before you find out and then warn them. And this is what the writer of Hebrews has been doing. What do you do with somebody who's weak? Can't even take a step themselves. What do you do? You grab their arm, you put it over your shoulder, and you help them. You walk. Guys, we have to be discerning to know when to do that. My error is everybody gets a warning. That's the way I am, unfortunately. And I need to learn better to be able to ask more questions so that I just don't give everybody a warning and you crush the faint-hearted. In my home, I've had to learn to do this. I still need to learn to do this to tell when a child is faint-hearted and when a child is unruly. There's a difference. And what you do for them at that moment is different. Okay? This is a warning passage back in Hebrews 4. It is heavy. The writer of Hebrews knows it. He knows by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what we need to hear next. Back in Hebrews 4, verse 14. What do we need to hear? Guys, you have a high priest. He's a great high priest. He passed through the heavens. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God. Hold fast your confession. You have a high priest. And we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. No, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, without disobedience. He can help you. So draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. You know what he's saying? He's saying, soak yourself in who Jesus Christ is in the gospel. You need to come back to that, guys. Spend yourself, search yourself, strip yourself, but soak yourself in the gospel. If you do not do this, even at times of unruliness and disobedience in your life, uh, if you fail to soak yourself, you will beat yourself up, you will grow weary, and you will, you will grow discouraged, um, and, and you will not be able to shepherd yourself well. The gospel, you never graduate from it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be passionate for the gospel. I love how your gospel, Lord, is the doorway into your salvation rest. And your gospel is also what comforts us as we continue to be diligent to enter your rest. And I pray for my friends here this morning, Lord, that in the middle of the, the heavy warning of this passage, Lord, that they would race to the shade of the gospel at the cross. And if they've been unruly, Lord, let, let the warnings and the admonition be clear, the rebuke be clear. If they have been faint-hearted, Lord, let the encouragement flow from the gospel. If they have been weak, Lord, let the help come from the gospel, from the Savior who can help us in our time of need. And Father, as we walk together in this church and are a part of this family together, Lord, help us to be patient with all men as we labor to minister to one another. Father, help us to be an encouragement to one another to 
um, spend ourselves. Help us to not be so prideful that we would not ask for help, encouragement, accountability. Give us a, a heart to participate in the lives of each other. And then help us, God, to be able to take this and step into our homes we live in to help those there be diligent to enter into salvation's rest. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it does for our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.